The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 10. We'll be reading through verse 20 this morning. I should confess that part of me wanted to read the entire chapter, but 40 verses would have been too long uh, for our purposes. But what I want you to grasp and pay attention to even now is that Matthew in our sermon text this morning is going to quote from this passage. He's going to quote verse 15 about Rachel weeping for her children. And when he does that, he expects us to think about all of Jeremiah chapter 31. There's a context. And the other 39 verses in the chapter are all filled with hope about God restoring his people. That is, the weeping is a reality, but God's triumph over man's evil is what Matthew wants us to have in mind. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning at verse 10. The word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. We'll be reading through verse 23 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. And I do also want to say something about this passage so you can hear it more faithfully. Um... There are two ways that what Matthew tells us in his gospel can be hard for us. 
One of those ways is where it's not hard to understand at all. In fact, we probably wish it was a bit fuzzier, but the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are pointed in a way that really challenges us in our life. That is not how this passage is hard. This passage is hard in a second way. It deals with a way of thinking that we're not uh, that used to. We don't do it in our daily lives. That is, Matthew is going to give us typology this morning. It's important to see that it's the Holy Spirit who's doing this. Um, Part of the problem we have with reading typology, I think, in Protestant circles, and I would say even particularly in Reformed Protestant circles, is we're a little bit leery about it. We're we're concerned that somehow people are going to smuggle in all sorts of spiritualized and fanciful interpretations. So we kind of ignore the typology. But beloved, that's what the Holy Spirit gives us in this passage. And we need to, instead of trying to get God to conform to us, to conform ourselves to what God says. And and therefore, you're going to have to work this morning and not just scratching your head and going, this is too hard, let me move on, but instead, by God's grace, to embrace what he has for us in this portion of his word. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. The word of our God. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Almighty God is the author of history. Almighty God is the author of history, and the story that he is telling finds both its center and its climax in Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the wonderful, but frankly strange world of typology. A type is an actual person, an actual thing, or an actual event that really existed in history. 
that points forward to something else, something greater, and usually it points forward to Jesus Christ. Now, some types will be so familiar to you um, that you'll interpret them without any difficulty at all. Uh, For example, you think about the Old Testament tabernacle, the temple, the sacrificial system, and you instinctively realize, because it shows up in the Bible a lot, that these things are pointing forward to Jesus Christ in particular ways. Nevertheless, some types types are more complicated or more subtle than this. For example, consider the opening words of Genesis chapter 22. Moses writes, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, on the surface, it seems like this story is just about Abraham and Isaac, about the Lord testing Abraham's faith, that Abraham would believe that if necessary, God would even raise Isaac from the dead in order to fulfill the promises that he had made to Abraham. And it is all those things. See, Abraham is not a literary construct. He's a real human being. Isaac is a real human being. They really do go to Mount Moriah. The Lord really does physically substitute a ram in the place of Isaac. It all really happens. But on this side of the cross, you can't possibly read Genesis 22 without realizing that it also is pointing forward not to Father Abraham, but to Father God, offering up his own son on that very same mountain range. That's how typology works. In this case, Moses draws our attention to this truth. He does so by focusing on the substitute who would die, not only in Isaac's place, but in the place of all God's people. Picking up in Genesis 22, verse 10, we read, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called on the the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, future tense, it shall be provided. See, Moses himself is telling us there's more to this story than simply the fact that Abraham passed a great test of his faith. Here's where we can easily get tripped up. We naturally think of promise and fulfillment as the ordinary course of when you hear that expression, and it was fulfilled. 
Now, promise and fulfillment can be very dramatic, but it's also very straightforward. So the Lord promises Abram that he's going to give him an heir. And then eventually he changes his name to Abraham, and he gives him the promise that even in her old age, Sarah will bear a son this time next year. And next year comes, and Sarah's bearing a son. Promise made, promise kept, it's fulfilled. It's all very straightforward. Even in that case, it's quite wonderful. That's not the way typology works. See, in typology, you don't get something so clear that it ends up with that direct result like that. I think the best way to think about biblical typology is to think about it like literary foreshadowing. Most of you are quite familiar with that. We all had to learn how to do it or at least to recognize it when we were in English class when we were younger. The thing about literary foreshadowing is the author doesn't tell you all the details. If you're reading a novel and on page 10 it says, by the way, in the, in the last chapter, this is how everything's going to get resolved, you realize this is not a very good writer. Uh, the way foreshadowing works is they give pointers. They're subtle. They, they have some differences. And, and actually, we only understand those pointers fully when we come to the end of the story and we see what those things were pointing forward to. That, to a large degree, is how biblical typology works as well. You know, so the temple, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, there's not actually a one-to-one correspondence with Jesus. But there's quite a bit, and it helps us understand those types that Jesus, when he comes, is God with us. That's what the tabernacle and the temple were designed to do. God was dwelling in the midst of his people. Uh, It points to how Jesus will take away our sins, but not in that one-to-one relationship that we often think of as promise and fulfillment. And as you can tell, the story with Abraham is even more complicated than that. This brings us to the wonder of biblical typology. Beloved, please get this. It is a wonderful thing. Human beings can only do foreshadowing with fiction. Almighty God does foreshadowing with history. That is, he does things in the lives of individuals and nations hundreds or thousands of years ago that point forward to things that are yet to come. So as we grow in our ability to recognize this strange and wonderful reality, it helps us see redemptive history as one unified story, with Christ is at the very center. That is what Matthew wants us to see in this portion of the gospel. Jesus is the center and the climax of the one unified story that God is telling with redemptive history. This morning, we will look at this portion of God's word under three main headings. First, Jesus is the true Israel. Second, God's plan to build his church cannot be thwarted. And third, Jesus will be despised and rejected by men. Let me give those to you again. First, Jesus is the true Israel. Second, God's plan to build his church cannot be thwarted. And third, Jesus will be despised and rejected by men. We begin with the truth that Jesus is the true Israel. He encapsulates the people of God in his own person. Look at verses 13 through 15 with me. Then when they, that is the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. 
For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Uh, There is a little detail in this passage that might be easy to skip over because it's not central to the passage. How did the Lord instruct Joseph? You might think he appeared to Joseph, but it's important to see he appeared to Joseph in a dream. Do you know what that means? It means Mary didn't see the angel. That is, the Lord is here last week and again at the end of this passage appearing specifically to Joseph so that Joseph just can't be the passive hanger-on to the wonder of the mother of God. Rather, he has to take responsibility for spiritual leadership in his family. And Mary has to trust him, that God is in fact speaking with him. And I think this would have drawn them together in a wonderful way around this sacred mystery that Mary had conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and had given birth to the Son of God to whom the worlds had been made. They were in this together. Nevertheless, the emphasis of the commands fall not on Joseph and Mary, but on the baby, on baby Jesus. Joseph is told, rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That would have been the most natural thing in the world for Matthew, or the angel to have said, um, Joseph, take Mary and your son, Or even, Joseph, take your wife and your son. But he focuses rightly on Jesus Christ because Jesus is the center and the climax of the story that God is writing with history. Mary isn't even named in this passage. Now, that doesn't slight Mary. She's not only not named, her identity in this passage is identified by her connection to Jesus, his mother. But Mary is portrayed throughout the Gospels as a very godly woman, a remarkably godly woman, a true woman of faith. It's not uh, about diminishing Mary. It's about holding the center where it belongs. The spotlight belongs on Jesus. And to state the obvious, Herod isn't after Joseph and Mary. Herod wants to kill the child whom the Magi had worshipped. So Joseph takes the child and his mother... In the middle of the night, not a way that they would have traveled in the ancient world. That was risky. It shows how urgent this was. He takes his mother and the child in the middle of the night, and they flee to Egypt. Now, there was a large Jewish population in Egypt. That's where he would have gone. He would have fit in, joined the synagogues, and so on. Uh, There was a particularly large Jewish community in Alexandria, but we're not even told where they go, just to Egypt. And we're not told anything about their stay there. That's not Matthew's purpose. Rather, Matthew wants us to make a connection that when Jesus comes back out of Israel, he's fulfilling a type of Israel coming out of Egypt. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So yes, this brings us back to that strange and wonderful world of typology. 
Um, foreshadowing is not the same thing as simply predicting that something will come true. Foreshadowing is much looser than that. The type simply hints at aspects of what will take place later. And when those events do take place, we can go back and reread the foreshadowing with a far greater meaning than we first appreciated. See, Matthew is quoting from Hosea 11.1. Now, I don't know if any of you were reading Hosea this week, but if you came to Hosea 11.1 this week and you weren't thinking about this passage from Matthew, it is almost certain you would not have been thinking about Jesus at all. Uh, I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean, Jesus connects to everything. But you would have been thinking about the original exodus when God brought his people out of Egypt under Pharaoh at that time. Right? Because this is not simply a, a promise fulfillment. It's a type. The connection requires us to be reading the Bible as an organic story where redemptive history is written by Almighty God with Christ both as the center and the climax of the story. By the way, I, I, I want to make a point here, but it's important beyond simply understanding this passage. By understanding what Matthew is doing, he's going to help us understand how to read the whole Bible, not just this passage. We ought to be reading our Bibles in hand, realizing that they keep having their connection to God sending his son into this world to save his people. There are two important connections that Matthew wants us to see between ancient Israel in the Exodus and Jesus. First, Jesus himself embodies the people of God in his own person. And second, Jesus has come to bring about the greater exodus, of which the first exodus was simply a type. Here's how this works. If you were to ask a faithful Jew in 1200 BC, who is the Son of God, what would they have said? Who is the Son of God? Well, here's what they would have said. We are. Please notice the the plural there, the collective plural. They would have said, we are, because that's what the Lord says to Pharaoh. Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my people go. Jews in 1200 BC did not talk about themselves individually as, I am a son or I am a daughter of God. Rather, the answer is, we are the son of God. But then when the Davidic monarchy gets established, the Davidic covenant, this this becomes a little richer. Yes, they still would have answered in 800 B.C. Remember, David starts around 1,000 B.C. We are the son of God, but they also would have said the Davidic king, who represents all the people, can be referred to as the son of God, too. It kind of, the nation is summed up in their covenant head. Uh, You'll see that when you read the Psalms. As you read Messianic Psalms, it sometimes is very difficult to know whether or not the psalm is talking about David or a Davidic king, or it's pointing forward to Jesus. Once you understand how the typology works, you might be able to say, it could be both. That is, it's referring to David, but because David's a type of Jesus, it actually hits on both points. That's how it works. Uh, By the way, this is helpful for us to keep in mind. Um, You can't help this, but you have to learn to think beyond it. We just naturally, as evangelical Christians living in the 21st century, when we read the New Testament and we see the phrase, Son of God, we naturally think in our heads, God the Son. Let me encourage you to remember that Son of God is, before it means that, 
It's a messianic title that could have been applied to David and all his successive kings. So you read Son of God in the New Testament, you also ought to be thinking Messiah, and in particular the one who sums up his people in his own person. He represents us. Uh, This means that there's a sense that when Jesus goes down into Egypt, he does so as the representative of all of God's people. He does so on our behalf. That may not seem so important to get right here, but that principle becomes very important later on. Jesus has united himself with us so that what he does impacts us. You see this, of course, with the fact that when Jesus dies on the cross, he's dying on our behalf, and we are actually described as dying with him. When he's raised from the dead, we are described as being raised with him. That's a glorious and an important truth. Uh, Paul puts it actually in those very terms. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says this, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Three times Paul says, with him. Not because you chose to be identified with Christ, but because Christ chose to be identified with you. Okay, I confess, that's a lot of theology to get in the first half of a sermon. It's a lot. But don't give up on it. This truth is important to understand this passage, but this truth about Christ uniting with us and therefore acting on your behalf as your representative and on behalf of all the people who he sums up in his own person is actually central to your theology and to your life. But I do want you to consider just the narrower issue that Matthew's applying this principle to in this passage, which is the Lord calling Jesus out of Egypt. The Holy Spirit is pointing us to the fact that the first exodus of the Lord rescuing his people from bondage in Egypt was in fact a type of the far greater exodus that Jesus would accomplish for us through his death and resurrection. Uh, The Lord would use Moses, covenant head at that time, to deliver his people from the bondage of slavery and punishment under Pharaoh to bring them into the promised land. But he's doing something greater through Jesus. He's delivering us in this second exodus from Satan, sin, and death to bring us into his kingdom that will last forever. Lord willing, when we get to Matthew chapter 17, we're going to see this more fully. This is precisely one of the main points about the transfiguration of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, where his glory shines through. Regrettably, it's sometimes obscured in a lot of modern translations. But when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and his glory shines through, he meets with Moses and Elijah in their glory. And they're having a conversation. Do you know what they were talking about? They were talking about the exodus. That's the word used in the Greek text. The exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish on behalf of his people. Beloved, this is an important theme. The exodus out of Egypt is a type of a far greater exodus 
that Jesus accomplishes for all of us. We might therefore imagine that Jesus would be warmly welcomed until we realize that King Herod is playing the part of Pharaoh. This leads to Matthew's second major point. God's plan to build his church cannot be thwarted. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. God's plan to build his church cannot be thwarted. Beginning at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now Herod, of course, knows nothing about the flight to safety that the Lord instructs Joseph to take at night. He's imagining that Jesus is still in Bethlehem, or at least in the surrounding region. Uh, He had tried to trick the Magi into revealing where the child was, so that when the Magi returned to his own country, Herod just flies into a reckless rage. We might say it's simply Herod being Herod. And he slaughtered all the male children, not only in Bethlehem, but in the surrounding region, who were two years old or under. Now, the age of the children, of course, comes from the Magi. They told Herod when they had seen the star. But Herod being Herod, we could be sure that he left plenty of room for a margin of error. Killing a few dozen innocent children to keep every threat away from his throne was just the type of moral monster that Herod was. And once again, we see the sharp contrast between King Herod and the King of Kings. Herod slaughtered innocent children to simply prevent the possibility of a threat to his throne by an infant. The king of kings left the throne of heaven to die in the place of his people to establish a kingdom that would never end. Yet Matthew wants us to see in this connection is the connection between the attack on Jesus And Jeremiah 31, that's the comparison. He wants you to take the attack that Herod makes to try to get rid of Jesus and compare it to Jeremiah chapter 31. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. In its original context, Jeremiah 31, verse 15, is all about the suffering of the Jewish people in the Babylonian exile. Right? People who had rebelled against God, been sent into exile, and being brutally attacked. And there's great mourning and weeping. It was very real pain. And yet, Matthew says, that ought to make you think of Herod killing these children. How does that work? How does Matthew connect the attack on Jesus by King Herod 
with the suffering and destruction of his people during the Babylonian exile? And the answer is, we have to read all of Jeremiah chapter 31. Because Jeremiah 31, 15 talks about the weeping. But the rest of the chapter is about God's everlasting love and his promise to restore Israel. To, to, to bring in the new covenant. That's from Jeremiah chapter 31. In fact, as I pointed out, there's a little debate. You might make another verse there. But I think really, in all of chapter 31 of Jeremiah, verse 15 is the only verse of weeping in the chapter. The other 39 verses in the chapter are all about how deeply the Lord loves Israel. How he is going to turn their weeping to joy. How he is going to establish the new covenant with the house of Israel. And how the Lord will rebuild the nation and make it holy. We read a portion of it in our old covenant reading, and I can't possibly do justice to the chapter this morning. I just want to encourage you, go home this afternoon or early this week and read the whole chapter at one sitting. It's it's only 40 verses. It's not going to take you that long. And you will be blessed to see how gracious God is to the very people that he must chastise because of their sin. For now, let me give you just two quotations which make clear that though the suffering of God's people is real, like Jesus came and identified with our suffering, though the suffering of God's people is real, the plan of the Lord to build his church and to bless his people cannot be thwarted. In fact, the decided emphasis of the chapter is upon rebuilding what has been destroyed so that it will be far better than it ever was before. The first quotation, beginning in verse 3, gives us the flavor of almost the entire chapter. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria, The planter shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. Do you hear how hopeful that is? Um, The verse about weeping is surrounded by promises of restoration. Or consider how immediately after hearing about Rachel weeping with her children, the Lord tells us this. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Isn't that the very point that Matthew is making? He's acknowledging it's horrible what Herod did. It has brought tragedy and great mourning into the lives of these people, particularly the families who lost their children. It was horrible. But the evil deeds of wicked men cannot thwart God from building and blessing his church. And yet there is still one more thing that Matthew wants us to know about Jesus this morning. Look at verses 19 through 23 with me. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise! Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that was what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. See, once again, the Lord is directing Joseph to take the steps. The angel of the Lord says, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. So Joseph arose, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. It's it's extraordinary. And yet it's also simple. The Lord showed his amazing grace toward Joseph in protecting their family. And Joseph responds with simple, clear obedience. He does what the Lord tells him to do. He goes where the Lord sends him to go. There are two details I want to draw your attention to before we get to Matthew's main point. Don't worry, they're very short. First, the angel says something that is surprising. He he doesn't say, he who sought your child's life is dead. He says, those who sought the child's life are dead. Now, Now, Matthew doesn't develop the plural here. But, but I suspect he's, he's using the word those to make clear that Jesus' enemies don't come down to just Herod. There's one horrible figure. You know, we do that sometimes when we're doing politics and we want to make you know, a war all about Saddam Hussein or one bad figure. Uh, what Matthew's making clear is there were enemies plural to Jesus. In fact, he will have enemies throughout his life. Second, Have you ever wondered why Joseph didn't simply choose to return to his hometown? I mean, why is he thinking about going to Bethlehem or to the area around Jerusalem in the first place? Well, on a positive note, he knew that Jesus was born to be king, and he might have thought it's really fitting that the Davidic king would grow up in Bethlehem, where David did. Or he might have been thinking it would be really good if this boy, this child who's going to be king, could grow up around Jerusalem so he could see how The the government worked. He could be there around the temple, both to learn and eventually, perhaps, even to lead. Right? That might have been a fairly natural thing to do. On the negative side, there's a pretty compelling reason for him not to go back to his hometown of Nazareth. What's going to happen to Joseph and Mary when they go back to Nazareth? Everyone there is going to say, welcome home. Notice there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm in that for this couple who committed adultery before they got married. Because that's what everybody would have wanted. That's what everybody would have believed. They would have thought that Joseph and Mary had committed sexual fornication and now they're raising this child and they're acting like this child is so special. To go back to Nazareth involved Joseph and Mary embracing living with the scandal of being radically misunderstood and against their own actual character. Well, this brings us to Matthew's main point. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So his homework today, go home and look up in the Bible and find out the Old Testament passage that prophesies that. Oh, that would be really mean for me to leave you there you will be very frustrated if you're looking for that in a concordance. It isn't there. See, Matthew was not drawing our attention to a prophecy 
but says Jesus will grow up in a town of Nazareth. Rather, he's drawing our attention to the prophets, plural, pointing forward to the Messiah identifying in such a way with what Nazareth represented. The town of Nazareth represented something that the prophets talk about regularly in the life of the coming Messiah. Well, how does that work? Uh, let me give you an example from my own life. Um, a little less than 30 years ago, I worked and lived for a while in Princeton, New Jersey. It's a beautiful, beautiful town. Very affluent. Um, it, it surrounds one of the most elite universities in the world. I mean, it just shouts prestige. And while I was there, there was this big debate about businesses who were not in Princeton getting post office boxes in Princeton and using Princeton in the name of their business. Well, it's obvious why they were doing that. They were hoping the prestige of Princeton would rub off on their business. I mean, doesn't it sound better to say my financial advisor is from Princeton than it does to say my financial advisor is from Newark? And, you know, if you think about Newark for very long, you realize it's almost Rodeo Drive compared to Camden. Um, I don't know exactly how it is now, but back then, uh, Camden was just, I hate to say it this way, but it was a sewer of a place to live people who lived around there would warn you, driving through Camden, do not stop for gas. Do not stop to get directions. And yes, if you get a flat tire, do not stop to change it. You are better off driving on the flat tire and ruining the rim of your car than you are getting out to change the tire and being a passive victim sitting there, a sitting duck for the criminals who are going to come and get you. That's the reputation that Camden, New Jersey used to have. Nazareth was kind of like that. I mean, the crime in Nazareth wasn't that bad. When people in Israel thought of Nazareth, they thought of Camden, New Jersey. That reputation would follow them wherever they went. Um, that's what Jesus was identified with in the Old Covenant through the prophets. And that's how he grew up. You know, I, I point out how bad Camden's reputation is, but um, just think about it from a business standpoint. Princeton Wealth Management has a huge marketing advantage over Camden Wealth Management. I actually looked it up. There is such a thing. Um, I kind of wonder why they haven't changed their name, to be honest with you. It's a real marketing advantage. And we realize this actually shows up in the New Testament. Do you remember how Nathaniel responded when he first heard where Jesus was from? Philip said to him, we have found him. That's Eureka. It's very exciting. Eureka. We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and through the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You almost got to say it like a curse word. Nazareth? Right? That's the reputation that's the reputation that Jesus embraced when he chose to be a Nazarene. And we see numerous predictions of Jesus being despised and rejected by men throughout the Old Testament prophets. For example, Isaiah 53 even uses those very words. Isaiah writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. 
Now, at first blush, that seems like a pretty anticlimactic place for Matthew to end chapter 2. I mean, if we go back to Jesus identifying with his people and encapsulating them himself, I think we get pretty excited about that once we understand it. Uh, When we think about Jesus bringing about the second and greater exodus, once we understand it, we can get pretty excited about that. But just how excited are we going to get about Jesus identifying with this horrible, horrible place called Nazareth so that he'd be despised and rejected by men? Well, beloved, we ought to get very excited about it. Jesus would choose fishermen rather than scribes to be his disciples. Jesus would choose to break bread with repentant sinners and tax collectors rather than with the Pharisees and the elite of his society. This reveals the very heart of Christ who reveals to us what God is like. Our God is by his very nature humble. And we can therefore approach him and be embraced. The Apostle Paul would later put it like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was by very nature God, did not count equality with God something to be clung onto. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the shameful death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, this is the Messiah that Matthew is introducing to us. This is the God whom we worship. Amen.